chapter 5. We're going to pick up there in verse 12, where we left off last week. And we're actually going to try and make our way all the way through the end of the chapter. The section kind of flows together, so we'll have to move at a little more quick pace this morning. But we're going to finish up Acts chapter 5, the entirety of the chapter. I'm not going to read all of that, certainly because it's a lengthy portion of Scripture. But I would like to read from verse 12 down through verse 20 to sort of set the context. And as we do, would you stand with me out of respect for God's Word as I read the Scripture? says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue now in our worship toward you and your son, Jesus Christ, that you'd help us as we open the word of God together to hear what you would speak to us through the scriptures this morning. We thank you for the word of God, that it's inspired by your spirit. And so we ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit to prepare us, to help us to be receptive and attentive. And we pray that we might hear his voice and that you would apply your word to our hearts in a personal way this very day and hour. Bless your word and speak to us now, Lord. We ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Here's a word of insight. The wisest approach, certainly the wisest function to life, is usually to do what is right before the Lord and then just trust the outcome with him. A lot of times we make the mistake of kind of maybe responding in fear or logic or trying to think through what would work out best. And the reality is we would just do better to just in faith do what is right in the sight of the Lord and just leave the outcome with him. That's really what we're going to see happening as we finish up the fifth chapter together in the book of Acts this morning here. That very reality kind of playing itself out, we'll see it as we go through. Remember the backdrop as we kind of come into the middle of chapter 5 here. We saw last time in the first part of chapter 5, the power of Almighty God displayed in a very pointed way. I mean, you couldn't probably see a clearer description of the power of God. Two people, remember Ananias and Sapphira, were guilty of hypocrisy, of lying, of pretending spiritually, trying to deceive, and they were severely judged by God and actually died right in the midst of the church assembly. God made a very unique, certainly one-time unique display of his great displeasure with hypocrisy. And, and God seemed to want to stamp the reality very clear in the midst of the church and in their eyes that he wanted genuineness spiritually among his people, that he wanted holiness to be maintained within his church and almost kind of like removing, removing a cancerous tumor out of the body before it defiles and destroys everything else, God kind of does that very thing surgically. He openly exposed the sin and hypocrisy of this married couple, and he dealt with these unhealthy people among the church body, and he removed them before the impact and the infection of what they were bringing would spread further. And as a result of that happening, verse 11, we saw as we closed, that said, great fear came upon all the church. And upon all those who heard these things. So a deep reverence for the awesomeness of God's holy presence came upon the entire congregation, 
those in the family of God, even those outside of the church, verse 11 says, sort of had in society a renewed respect for the life and the activities of the church in that day. The point the Bible is trying to convey to us here is this was a great deterrent against people playing games spiritually. When this happened that day, everybody who was playing games kind of sobered up real quick. And it was a great deterrent. You know, they didn't want to be the next one standing in the midst of the worship service singing, I surrender all, and then fall over dead because they didn't really mean it. I mean, this, this was just a strong deterrent. And people even outside of the church had a renewed respect for the church itself. Well, going on, verse 12, it says, and through the apostles or the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. So the power of the Lord, notice, was continuously at work among the church, the ministry of the leaders, the apostles, much like really the days of Jesus as we read the gospel accounts. It says there are many signs and wonders were being done. Now, that's a reference to miraculous works happening by God. But take notice, these miraculous works being uh, you know, at work among the people to help and to minister to lives and to set people free and touch people who are suffering. These miracles were not just random. The Bible says here many signs and wonders. Now, when the Bible speaks of a sign, certainly speaking of a miraculous work, but it's purposely trying to indicate to us that that miracle was attached in a way where it was supposed to signify something, just like a sign, traffic signs, they, they indicate something. And so when Jesus at times would do miracles, they at times would be signs to reveal something about the Lord. They would signify something about the Lord that people were to see. So when Jesus would speak and call the, 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 the raging sea and storm to cease, well, that was to signify that Jesus had authority over creation. When Jesus would do a miracle and he would cast out a demon, well, that was intended to be a sign to signify that Jesus had power over the demonic realm and over all the spiritual realm. So these signs were taking place to show things about the power of the Lord. It wasn't just a random miracle show. This wasn't just people saying, hey, come to our conference and we're going to set up some real signs and wonders because we have a sign and wonder ministry. Like it's kind of a, a show for people to go attend or watch on television. No, these were intended to purposely signify and reveal things about God to people. To let people see what Jesus had authority and power over. They were very pointed works, not just random kind of miracles taking place. Verse 12 goes on to say, And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest, that is seeming to refer to the society, dared join them, but the people esteemed them very highly. So notice there was a strong unity and harmony amongst the church family. We've seen this multiple times now. They're routinely gathering together. That word one accord speaks of harmony, where people are assembled together, doing different things, contributing different parts, but they're all working collectively and cooperatively because they all want to accomplish the same goal. And this speaks of kind of the harmony, the shared life among God's people, that they were regularly assembling together for worship and prayer. They were doing life together. But notice as well, the Bible indicates to us in verse 13, that even those in the society that is the unsaved had great respect for the people of God in this day. They weren't looked down upon, they weren't disregarded, but instead it actually says that the society sort of was hesitant to join them, but they esteemed them very highly. They held them in very high regard. What's being indicated is they knew something divine is happening among those people. They sensed the presence of God was among them. They didn't see the church as just sort of a spiritual social club, like the Elks Lodge with Jesus as the mascot. They saw the church as, as something really supernatural's happening there. There's something of the presence of God taking place among those people where they were esteemed very highly. People had a sense of respect because as they looked upon the church, this was this very clear evidence among the people of God. God is in the midst of those people. I can't explain it, and I don't even know if I, I want to join it. But I can tell God's in the midst of those people. 
something supernatural is happening there and the presence of the Lord was just very powerful in their midst. So much so, verse 14 says, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So notice the numbers of the church continued to increase as souls were being saved. The Bible records here, as it has a few times, that there were continuous salvation experiences happening. Notice, through the life and the functions of a healthy church, it tells us here in that day that salvation was happening in their midst. New people were believing upon the Lord. And please take note, that's not referencing or referring to growth as far as attendance in church meetings. That's not what it's speaking of there. It's not speaking of an increase in the membership of the church or that if a church has a really good strategy and strategic plan like a business with marketing that they can recruit extra clients and really build up their customer base and they can kind of just really build the club up so that it can have more attendees and more in its membership. Look what the text says. It does not say people were being added to the local church. It says believers were being added to to the Lord. There's a difference there. It doesn't say that people were being added to the church. It says believers, converts, those who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord were being added, not to the church, added to the Lordship of Jesus. Added to the Lord. That is, souls were being converted. People were having a spiritual experience with the Lord Jesus in a genuine way. They were surrendering and making decisions to follow Jesus Christ. There were conversions of souls, an increase of new believers, people receiving Jesus as Savior. And look, biblically, again, there's God's ideal. That's God's ideal. God's ideal is not necessarily what we often call church growth, but increase of conversions to Jesus Christ. An increase of conversions to Jesus Christ. That's what we ought to desire and aspire towards, and we ought to pray and seek after as we minister as a local church, that we would see believers being added to the Lord. And look, as we, uh, you know, kind of humbly and soberly evaluate ourselves, if a church is not seeing believers being added to the Lord in salvation, then we have to humbly ask, why? Lord, is there something in us that needs to change? Is there something that we are not in tune with you in regards to? Lord, why aren't we seeing believers being added to the Lord? Lord, why aren't we seeing people being converted? Why aren't we seeing souls being saved? And I think we have to ask ourselves that humbly if we don't see that happening amongst the church. Verse 15, he goes on to say, so that they brought the sick out into the streets, laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits demons and they were all healed so again further describing the power of the lord jesus ministry changing many lives it describes here from all the surrounding cities not just jerusalem itself but it says from all the surrounding cities even outside of jerusalem now people were bringing those with deep needs in their life physical needs sick people those with diseases those who were tormented by demonic spirits, those who had spiritual issues. And it says, as they brought them by the power of the Lord working amongst people, they were all being healed. So powerful was the work of the Lord. In fact, we get this kind of unique insertion here in verse 15. It tells us that some people, because the power of the Lord was so strong in that day, some people even believed, somewhat superstitiously, that if even the shadow of Peter fell on somebody they'd be miraculously healed or they'd be set free from a demon now look the bible does not say there if you read it in context it does not say that peter's shadow was healing people that's not what it says there it says there that people were bringing people that at least the shadow of peter passing by might fall on some it doesn't say peter's shadow was healing people the indication there is there was such a sense of expectancy among the people because the power of the Lord was so strong in their midst 
and they were seeing people be healed and lives being transformed and people being set free from demons as the Lord was working through the hands of his apostles, signs and wonders, the presence of God was so strong in their midst and the power of the Lord was operating so efficiently, people actually thought, you know what? If we even get them near Peter's shadow, the Lord will heal them. The Lord will set them free. And the picture there is an atmosphere where the Lord's powerfully working in the midst of his people and people are coming with a sense of expectancy. They're believing God's going to work with a sense of faith, looking and trusting that God wants to work and that God would work. Well, seeing this great work happening in the city, once again, the religious leaders, as we've seen before, are filled with jealousy as attentions being drawn away from them. And it's now seeming to turn towards these followers of Christ and this new thing, the church that's coming into existence. Verse 17, look at this. It says, then the high priest rose up and all who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. So once again, as we've already seen, these same group of established religious leaders, we've talked about before, this is a reference to what would be called the Sanhedrin, a, a 71 member religious ruling council. 70 members that were basically made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and then led by the one high priest. As they came together with power, they now rise up in opposition. And as a powerful religious group, it says here that they are greatly angered. It says they're filled with indignation as they see the power of Jesus and his ministry happening among them. They're greatly upset. And again, remember the Sadducees, as we've talked about before, these were those who were sort of the liberal theologians in the day. Uh, they didn't believe in signs or wonders. They didn't believe in spirits or resurrection from the dead. They were basically the materialists and the humanists of that day religiously. And they believed everything is about life now. And they didn't believe in, in the sense of resurrection or angels and spirits. And they despised anyone who would speak about those things because that would contradict the way they lived, which was very material. They were a very political group. They lived very wealthy with great power and sought to enjoy everything in this life. And they didn't like the thought of, hey, if you're talking about spirits, resurrection and afterlife, now you're saying we're going to be accountable. That, that's cramping my style. <laughs> because I want to live immoral, but kind of be religious at the same time. So stop talking about this afterlife, spiritual stuff. I just want to go to the worship meetings and then live like a devil. I mean, just you're, you're, you're cutting into my space here. So of course, when Jesus came and his teachings and, and those saying that Jesus has risen from the dead and that he's coming back as Lord to someday judge the world, Hearing those kind of things, well, that angered them. That's why it says they were filled with indignation. And verse 18 says they then laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prisons. So, so angry are they, they act upon it. And now, once again, they use their authority. We see this happening again. And the apostles are now arrested. They're imprisoned. They're actually thrown into a place of incarceration in the common prison but look at verse 19. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So notice, though Jesus' followers are powerless to change their situation here. I mean, they've been arrested. They've been put into a prison there's no way they can change their situation, but yet here we see the Lord intervening and resolving the problem that they're facing for them. They did what was right and it caused circumstantial challenges in their life and they can't change the problems, but because they did what's right, the Lord now intervenes by his power and he's gonna deal with the situation that they're facing. It tells us here in verse 19 and 20, that an angel is dispatched by the Lord to come and free his servants who are locked in this prison cell. And they now come, this angelic messenger opens the doors, sets them free. And again, as we speak about angels in the Bible, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. So again, angels never meant to be worshipped. 
But angels are created spiritual beings that God has created for his purposes. And Hebrews 1 tells us that they are sent out on assignment from the throne of God as ministering spirits to actually aid and assist those who are servants of God. They're sent forth on our behalf to bring assistance, to provide protection, to work in miraculous ways with the power of God, to exercise God's power, to shield and defend and protect his people, to do works that are necessary to assist his people and to aid them. They're a lot of times like divine bodyguards. Here we see them coming in and, and kind of coming in on a, 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 an operation like, you know, divine green berets or the seal unit. They drop in and somehow free up the apostles and they get them out of prison by miraculously coming in, it says, and opening the doors and bringing them out and giving them, notice verse 20 now, an instruction. So they set the apostles free and look at their instruction. They say, go stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. So what's the message from the throne of God? Return back to what you were faithfully doing. They say, here's what God wants you to do. Go and speak to the people all the words of this life. You probably should underline or circle that. Speak the words of this life. That, that's how they describe, you might say, Christianity. Notice, Christianity is following Jesus and it's about a life. It's about experiencing a life with Christ. Biblical Christianity is not about a religious system that was instituted for people to conform to and kind of follow. It's not about routines to observe. And so if you want to start to get a little more religious, you know, you can kind of pick and sort through, you know, and uh, Christianity looks good. I'll, I'll try the routines of Christianity. Christianity is not about a, a dead religious experience where we kind of follow a way of life. And right, who, who hasn't experienced that before? I remember when I first got saved and, you know, all of my friends kind of didn't know what to do with me and they were confused. And so what are they, why just, why is, you're really getting religious, right? I mean, just, you just, I just, is that, you, that working for you? And just, you really seem to be, and their mindset was, you've kind of just chosen to adopt kind of like a, a way of, of living now. You kind of have a new thing that you're doing, a system that you're following, and you're going to kind of do these routines that you've learned from the church and so forth. Look, Christianity is about embracing the life of Christ. It's about having an experience with Jesus personally in a relational way. Jesus said in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And because I live, you will also live for I will be in you. See, this is what the Bible conveys to us of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's about experiencing a spiritual life, being awakened spiritually to the realities of the things of God. Where we were once dead, and though we were living physically, we live life physically, I was once dead to everything that was spiritual. And when I accepted Jesus and the presence of the living Jesus came inside of my life, his spirit caused my dead spirit within to come alive. And now I'm awakened to the things of the spirit. And now all of a sudden there's this life spiritually that I never had before. It's about receiving eternal life. The Bible tells us in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Accepting Jesus is about accepting a eternal quality of life, a quality of age-abiding life, that we've received that from the Lord. And certainly, this is what the disciples were supposed to be conveying to people. Hey, we want to tell you about this life. You can have a life together with Christ. Jesus wants you to experience his life. He's not a dead religious leader. He's a living, risen Savior. And this is what he desires for us, to have fellowship with his life. Paul said it best in Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, do you see what Paul understood? Paul said, what I've come to experience is a new life. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. There's a start of a new life. Your old life ends 
and you start a new life, not a new way of living, a new life. A life where you're married with Christ. It's like when you enter into a marriage. It's a new life, if you haven't noticed. Right? It's a a whole new life. Life's different now because you're sharing your life with another person. Well, that's what it means when you come to Jesus. You enter into a spiritual marriage and you start a life with Christ. You experience Jesus in your life. Paul said in Philippians, for me to live is Christ. To live with Christ. That's what it means. Look, that's biblical Christianity, experiencing a life together with Christ, not following Christian routines. Are you experiencing the life of Jesus? That's what God wants. Look, today, if you've come and come and come and you know, I, just, I just don't get, I just, all these people, I just, I just don't get what they're so into. I mean, I'm listening to the same guy giving the same lecture. And I'm even trying to lift the songs and like, I just, what is it? Look, the difference is between being a spectator and a participant. A spectator just watches and observes. A participant engages. Jesus wants you to experience his life, to experience a relationship with him. That's what truly was to be conveyed. That's what we need to be sharing with people. Tell people, the angel said, go tell them about this life. Verse 21, and when they heard that, they entered the temple. Notice, early in the morning and taught. So there was no procrastination. They were set free from prison with boldness and courage. They go back to the temple the very next day. Verse 21 says, but the high priests and those who came called them together, the council, with all the elders and children of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. So the next day, the council comes together. They're ready to interrogate their prisoners. So they say, go get the prisoners out of the cell that we just incarcerated last night. And verse 22 says, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, saying, indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards were standing outside before the doors But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, imagine literally what this must have been like. They say, go get the prisoners, bring them in for the trial. We're ready to start interrogating them. So they go to get the prisoners and they come back and they say, "Um, we have some really good news and we have some bad news. What do you want first? Well, give us the good news first. Look, here's the good news. We found the door shut and locked securely. Great. Remember those guards you posted outside, one guard at each door? They're still standing there, faithfully guarding the prison cell. Fantastic. Glad we got good security in the Sanhedrin. (laughs) What's the bad news? Well, when we opened the doors, nobody was in there anymore. They're gone. We, We don't know where they went. And so all of a sudden, they're recognizing something pretty profound and miraculous has happened once again. So verse 24 says, Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple and chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, those men whom you put in the prison, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people. So they've got to be quite baffled. And now they hear, Hey, remember the guys that we locked up and in prison last night for teaching people about Jesus? They're actually, we found them. They're in the temple, and they're doing it again. You want to talk about dedication to Christ. There's a clear example of dedication to Christ. They go right back to doing the same thing faithfully under the Lord. How do you stop people like that? I mean, what do you do with somebody who's that dedicated to Christ and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord? Verse 26 says, Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. So they go out peaceably and coerce them to come in and talk because they realize the people like these guys. They listen to them. They're helping people, healing people. And if we get forceful, they may violently riot and attack us. So they coerce them to come in peaceably. And verse 27 says, when they brought them in, they set them before the council and the high priest Asked them, saying, did we not strictly, I can imagine the tone, (laughs) did we not strictly command you not to teach 
in this name. So they remind them, as we saw back in Acts chapter 4, where they there arrested them, threatened them, and said, don't teach any more in this name or there's going to be big problems. And they said, look, did you forget what we threatened you? Here you are doing the very thing we told you to stop talking about Jesus, stop teaching his ways, and here you are doing the same thing again. They say, verse 28, and look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So there, notice, indictment and accusation is really a phenomenal compliment. You see what they say there, verse 28 to them? You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. These early believers took very seriously the great commission of Jesus. Matthew 28, Jesus gave them a commission before he ascended back into heaven. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe the, all things I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And these early believers actively and intentionally found ways to observe what Jesus asked, which was to go into their world and to talk to people about Jesus, to teach people the ways of the Lord, to faithfully live for Jesus in their community, to share Christ with those around them in their society and their city as a result. Look at it in verse 28 there. Their city, Jerusalem, became filled with the teaching and the awareness of the doctrine and truths about Jesus Christ. They filled their city with the awareness of that. Boy, I look at that and I think to myself, may we seek to become guilty of the same in our city. How wonderful would it be if the church today, would it not be true, could be said the same thing of us. You filled this city with an awareness of Jesus. You've literally just filled your city with and your community with a knowledge about Jesus and what it means to live for him. And question, how does that happen? By a work of God's spirit moving among his people, giving us a heart for such things, empowering us to be useful for him. When the church is strong and Christians are healthy, then we become influential. And we start to have impact and become more intentional about actually taking serious our commission to tell people about Jesus and to seek to see believers added to the Lord. And here this was happening profoundly among them and it was causing great consternation for the religious leaders. So they say, what are you doing? We strictly told you to stop. Look at verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, very well, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, let me just say, that is the correct answer whenever you are asked to directly disobey God or disobey God's word. That is always the right answer. Jesus commanded them to share the truth about him. The religious leaders were telling them not to do what Jesus clearly told them to do. They had the word of God and they knew what the word of God said and now they have the words of men coercing them, asking them to do something in contradiction to the very word of God itself. And as a result, they're now faced with a very clear, real conflict. Are they going to obey God and God's word or are they going to obey the words and the requests of mere human beings? This was a very clear conflict that they were facing. Are they going to do what pleases God or are they going to do what pleases people? Look, the Bible teaches... Romans 13 and other places that we should respect and submit ourselves to civil authority. We should not be people in this culture as Christians who are leading the charge, being rebellious, anti-authority, resist the cops, fight with the government. That should not be who we are as Christians. We should be honoring and respecting the civil authorities as God tells us to. But if we are ever asked to do something, in violation to the word of God by our government or by civil authority, then civil disobedience is biblically correct. Then we are to say, if you are asking us to do something that contradicts what the word of God clearly says, then we must obey God because there is a higher authority. 
and there is a higher throne that we are accountable to, and in those cases, it is the right thing, should it come, to then obey God rather than men. But that same spiritual principle, Peter states there in verse 29, it applies to spiritual life in general. Not just civil disobedience and facing the kind of challenge that they were. Sometimes you and I in our everyday lives of following Jesus, situations may arise in your Christian life where you may find yourself in a situation being pressured or asked to do something wrong. And what's being asked of you, you know clearly is disobedience to the word of God or what you're being pressured to do by someone. Or what someone is demanding of you clearly violates what God's word says. Maybe it's in your job. Maybe your employer is asking you to do something unethical, to lie, to cheat, to do something wrong. In those occasions, you must have the faith and the courage to say, I must obey God rather than a mere man in this situation. Perhaps you may be in a relationship or maybe a situation with friends and somebody's pressuring you and asking you to do something that clearly violates what the Word of God says. And you know it's a violation of the Word of God. You must have the faith and the courage to say, in this situation, no matter what it does to our relationship or to our friendship, I must obey God rather than you as a mere person. I must obey God first. And sometimes we will find ourselves in those kind of situations. Again, I'm not saying we should get rebellious when something violates our convictions. Be very careful. We need to have chapter and verse in these kind of situations. Sometimes, you know, we have very strong convictions and, well, I'm not listening to you, I'm listening to God. And and, and it's a conviction issue. I think we need to be careful there. There's a difference between somebody asking you to violate your you know, convictions. Well, I have a conviction that I need to take a three-hour lunch because I want to pray and read my Bible. And your boss says, uh, no, you get a half-hour lunch. You're fired. <laughs> you know, I mean, just, and I've seen this kind of stuff. Well, I, I sense the Lord's leading me to share the gospel with people. And so somebody's sharing the gospel instead of doing their job. <laughs> just look at them. You're there to work. And we need to be very careful in these situations. But when somebody asks you or pressures you to do something that you know is a temptation to disobey God's word, look, maybe you're facing that right now. Maybe you are facing a situation where you are kind of a little hesitant because you're thinking, I'm kind of nervous what to do here. And and I know that if I do this, it's going to be disobeying God. Can I encourage you? Have faith. Do the right thing. Be devoted to the Lord and trust God with the outcome. Obey God and let the details sort themselves out as you do what's right and honorable before the Lord. So Peter takes this stand with the apostles and verse 30 says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered. Peter doesn't mince words. (laughs) By hanging on the tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. So also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So notice after this really bold stand there in verse 29, it almost seems like the Holy Spirit just further emboldens them now that they've done what's right to just continue to be very bold in the presence of those who they're speaking to, they begin to preach, verse 30 through 32, the exact same truths about Christ that they've been preaching all along. They don't tone down the message. They don't say, maybe if we just soften it up a little bit, our lives won't be so difficult and we won't face such challenges. They just faithfully again preach the same components of the gospel we've seen before. They speak there about the crucifixion of Christ and even the reality of human guilt. They say there in verse 30 uh, that you murdered Jesus by hanging him on a tree. That speaks of his crucifixion. But they say, but, but our Father, God, he's raised him up, that Jesus is alive from the dead. He's alive. And more than that, they say he's ascended back, exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior. That is, he overcame all these things. He's in a place of rulership. And then he speaks as well of what Jesus wants to give to people. He says there in verse 31 that he wants to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. That is one of the things that Jesus as savior and prince and ruler of all wants to give to people If they come to him, he wants to give them the power to repent. That speaks of the power to turn away from doing what's wrong. Jesus 
as prince and ruler of all says, look, if you come to me, I want to give you the power to repent and turn away from doing what's wrong, to repent of sin, to turn away, to turn the opposite direction, and I'm willing to give you forgiveness for the very sinful things that you are doing. And if that weren't enough, he says as well, with the package, he says, God wants to give to us, he speaks, verse 32, of the Spirit. That is, when we seek to obey the Lord, not in acts of obedience, but that is, the idea is, is obedience of faith. That when the voice of God is saying to us, you need Jesus Christ and you need to act upon that. You need to obey and respond to Christ and receive him into your life. The Bible teaches one of the, the reciprocal gifts of making that step of spiritual obedience to the voice of God is that God gives to us of his spirit. God literally gives a part of himself to us. He literally gives his spirit to come live inside of us, to dwell within us, to empower us as the result of conversion. The Holy Spirit comes into the life of the believer and dwells within us. Romans 8 says, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. And that's one of the gifts that God gives as the result of salvation, of coming to Christ that we get to repent of sin and wrongdoing. We get to receive forgiveness and be cleansed. And God says, because you've made that act of obedience to turn from what's wrong and to actively embrace me, as he says, I'm going to give you my spirit to dwell within you. And what a wonderful thing that we have the spirit residing within us. Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, he said that he would be sent from the Father to live inside us as a helper. What a wonderful thing that as a Christian, that God has given of his spirit to us to help us in living a spiritual life. It's not like you come to Jesus and he says, okay, you're saved, you're forgiven. Now, try really hard until the day you go to heaven. He gives you his spirit and his spirit empowers you and helps you from the inside to have relationship with God and to walk in holiness and to overcome sin and to love your enemies and to pray and to do those things that will be pleasing to the Lord and that God gives of his spirit to us is a phenomenal gift that he blesses us with. Verse 33 says, however, when they heard this, notice they weren't interested. They were furious <laughs> and they plotted to kill them. So things are getting very real. That's not you know, speech that should be overlooked. Literally, they're furious and they are now planning the assassination of these followers of Christ for just telling people about Jesus. This is a very real and a very serious, dangerous, intense moment for the apostles. However, look what happens. They did what's right. God's going to intervene again. Look at verse 34. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and he commanded them to be the apostles to be put outside for a little while. Now, we know historically Gamaliel was a man, Gamaliel, who was highly knowledgeable in the law of God. It says he's a teacher of the law. Church history and, and documents we have tell us that he was very devoted in the way he lived his life according to the Mosaic law as well. We also know that he was the one actually who was the mentor of Saul of Tarsus who ultimately becomes Paul the Apostle. So here is this man among the Jews, this rabbi, if you would, a Pharisee, very devoted to the law of God, very devoted to God, held in high respect, and he now interjects, and he's used by God to protect God's servants. He says, look, maybe we need to cool off a little bit. Let's put them outside. And he kind of temporarily calms the storm, if you would, a little bit. And then verse 35, he addresses the council. He says, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men about 400 joined him he was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing and then after this he says remember Judas of Galilee he rose up in the days of the census and he drew away many people after him and he also perished and all who obeyed him were dispersed so Gamaliel kind of says look we need to be patient here and let's be careful that we don't just react in our furious 
you know, upset emotions and in our indignation do something in our ruling that's just going to put to death these men and cause a bigger problem than what we really need to. And he reminds them in verses 35 through 37 of two occasions in the past when religious rebels, if you could, kind of started a new sect. And how they gained some followers and their teachings lasted for a little while. But he says, but in both of those occasions, he says, we know from history, it died off quick. Nothing ever came of it. It came to nothing, he says. So in light of that, verse 38, his reasoning. And so he says, I say to you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. So Gamaliel reasons with them by offering some wisdom. His suggestion basically is this. Perhaps, he's saying, perhaps we would be wise to just leave this situation alone and just wait and see what unfolds. Maybe it would be really wise to refrain from interfering and just let God kind of sort things out in time. And he says there, if this plan or work is something of the flesh of men, he says, it's likely going to come to nothing in time. If it's just of human origin, it'll probably just in time fall apart and falter. and It'll just fizzle out. But he says, but if this is of God, if this thing is of God, if this plan is of God, then he says, you can't overthrow what God's doing. You're going to be fighting against God. That's never going to succeed. Now, Certainly, it's true. Surely no work of God can be stopped by men. But let me say this. I think we need to be careful in looking at Gamaliel's statements here, lest we be confused, where he says, if this work is of men, then it will come to nothing because granted, and follow my reasoning here, granted, there are false religions and cults that have been established by men that are not of God that didn't stop and cease right away, but have carried on through centuries. And we need to be careful that we don't look at such things which are of men, which are of human origin, and are not of God, false religions and pseudo-Christian cults that have continued to carry on and say, oh, well, I guess since they didn't end, then maybe they're of God. No, 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 listen. We can't take Gamaliel's words of advice here and make doctrine out of them. He was giving advice to a council in a situation. And look, ultimately... These works of men, pseudo-Christian cults and false religions, in time, they may have lasted for centuries, but in time, they will fail. They will come to nothing. And what they will do is not profit those who followed. It will ultimately cause people who followed to perish in eternal damnation. But that being said, I think Gamaliel's wisdom, as advice he tries to give here, as sort of an older, wise man, is helpful in the sense of this for our own application Sometimes I think it is indeed really wise not to overreact in situations and to too quickly jump in and interfere in a situation. Sometimes it is real wisdom to just kind of sort of wait and see. And rather than just say, I I don't like the way this is going or I don't like the way this happened and just kind of, I'm going to stop it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to, sometimes it's better to just say, you know what? I'm just going to keep my hands off and I'm going to let God just kind of sort this out in time. Because if this is not of God and it's of the flesh, then you know what? God can cause any human plan to fail in time. And it may take time. But sometimes it's better to just kind of let God in time sort things out. By the same token, because we don't know all things, when something is of God, then it's vain to try and stop it. And sometimes we may not like something that's happening at first for whatever reason, And we jump in too quick and we try and stop it. And God says, "Uh, pardon me? Just because you don't see it doesn't mean I ain't doing it. And I don't want to be fighting against God. That seems like a sure loss. So sometimes one of the wisest things we can do is kind of just keep our hands off. Just don't interfere. Let things unfold. Let God kind of sort things out and do what he's going to do. Verse 40, so they agreed with Gamaliel when they had called for the apostles and beaten them. Literally, the language is flogged them, so therefore it means they would be bloodied, their backs ripped open from a whipping, and they commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go after these severe threats and abuse. 
verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease, these guys, teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, after being tortured and threatened like that, you would think that'd be the final straw, that they would stop doing what they're doing and it would be effective. But instead, these believers found it an honor and a badge of privilege to suffer shame for Jesus. They didn't find it insulting. They found it a badge of honor. It says they rejoiced to be shamed and experience shame for being a faithful follower of Christ. They found it an honor and they kept persevering and doing what was faithful. It says daily in the homes and in the temple, still preaching and teaching, being faithful to Jesus, doing the same thing. I look at that and I think, man, talk about not deterring faithfulness, not deterring commitment to Jesus Christ, to rejoice and to carry onward. You know, in light of that passage and what that sort of concludes with, let me leave you with this thought this morning. What does it take to stop you spiritually? What does it take to stop you spiritually? What experiences, what pressure, what resistance, what, what does it take to stop you spiritually in your walk with Christ? What does it take to, to stop you from sharing your faith? What does it take to stop you from reading your Bible, from praying? What does it, what does it take to just kind of deter you circumstantially, pressures? What does it take? You know, at the men's uh, conference I did a couple weekends ago, I looked at the men at one point and I said, look, please don't be spiritual cream puffs. Have a little grit spiritually, would you? Have a little determination. Look, as Americans, we are radically determined people when we want something. Career, education, pursuits, hobbies, exercise, crossfitting. Are we that much crossfitting for Jesus? What about that cross? Take up your cross, follow Christ. I look at this perseverance and I think, wow, Lord, I'm convicted. May God give us by his spirit the same boldness, the same love and devotion for Christ that we would exercise it in our lives. Amen?